I'm Jeff. It's good to be with you. Sorry. Ryan was like, have we had any problems with the mic? I'm like, no, not for several weeks. We should be fine. And then I turn it on and it didn't turn on. So there we go. But it's on now, so we're good. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm glad that you're with us. Uh, it's the beginning of Advent season and we kind of followed the church calendar last year. This year what we're going to do is we're going to journey through Genesis. Uh, and a lot of what we're going to do in this series uh, we just sang in that song. I, I always, you know, the Christmas songs, we sing them this time of year, and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is an Advent song, and it captures so much of what we'll be doing as we journey through. Here's our new series. Alyssa um, makes these slides. I love it. She decided to use an owl. We're going to talk about seeing Jesus from the beginning. Uh, and since we have an owl in our graphic, I thought I'd start this morning with a story about some other birds. Are you up for that? Uh, some of you know that we've had three male turkeys on the property for quite a while, and I've been growing a very negative story about these birds. They're beautiful birds, but incredibly annoying. They chase people. Uh, last time there was BSF here on a Wednesday, I was outside in the cold using a stool to get them away from the ladies so they could get in without being rushed by the turkeys. Now, I always tell people the turkeys, they're kind of funny, they're beautiful-looking birds when you get close to them, and they don't actually bite or hurt anybody, but they do kind of make their presence known. And I've been getting more and more agitated with these birds and how much time I find myself spending defending people who are being rushed by the birds. Uh, it's a daily occurrence that we hear honking out on Bethany Road, and you know the turkeys are on the road, so people are honking. However... However, this week, I was talking with Sandy. Sandy works in the office in the morning. <laughs> and Sandy said, you know what I saw today, Jeff? I saw those turkeys chase the geese off the property. Now, I've been annoyed by the turkeys. I don't like geese, I'll tell you. I don't like geese. I'm a runner, and they're mean. They leave a mess, a gigantic mess that you cannot avoid when you're running. And during the spring when they have their babies, they will not move off the path. And so sometimes I have to turn around and find a new way of going because geese are mean. And Sandy said this, and I was like, I haven't seen geese. Our front walkway is clean of all the geese junk that usually comes with geese being a... And all of a sudden I was like, I love the turkeys! I hope they never leave. I would much rather have turkeys than geese. Now, that's a totally true story and a little silly. Thank you for laughing. But it also is like a good segue into what I'm really hoping to do over the next four weeks. In the same way that I had this narrative around the turkeys... But then I got this new piece of information, and I went back, and I revisited the narrative and kind of interpreted it, understood it in a new way because of this information. I hadn't thought about the geese, and now that they're brought to my attention, they're gone. I love these turkeys. Well, that's what I want to do with the book of Genesis. We actually did a longer look through Genesis a few years ago. We're just going to grab four stories, big stories in the book of Genesis, but we're going to be looking for Jesus from the beginning. Because we're preparing ourselves. Who is this king who is going to come? And what I, what I kind of want to do a little bit of, we'll just, we'll just ease into it a little bit this morning, is remind you that as Christians, we read the Bible differently. Because we're always looking for Jesus. We're always looking for Jesus. Because 
I heard a pastor say not that long ago, you want to preach a good sermon, tell a story where Jesus is the hero. Because he's always the hero. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to be back at the very beginning. But I want us to see where we can begin to either, either see Jesus outright or just begin to see the story unfolding that, again, points to him. And as a pastor, I've learned there are some very unhealthy ways to do this. Sometimes people do it in unhealthy. And there's very healthy ways to do it. And we want to be healthy as we interact with the biblical story. And we want to learn from Jesus. So before we even jump into Genesis, this is the resurrected Jesus, Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, a very famous story. It says, Jesus took them through the writings of Moses. That's what we'll be doing in December, Genesis, the writings of Moses. And then in January, we're going to do a longer look. Genesis, we're just going to run through quickly. In January, we're going to go into Deuteronomy, and we're going to spend more time because I really want us to understand the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus took them through the writings of Moses. That's what we'll be doing. And all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we want to read the Bible as Jesus would teach us to. We want to find him. He's in the story. He's there. And if we can't see Jesus in, in, a, in a healthy way, so, I mean, we don't want to force him in there, but he's in there. And if we can't see him as Christians, we're not, we're not getting the full riches that this story has for us. Now, I got excited about this. I kind of planned this out a while ago, and I... Um, and I like, I mean, if I like to read, I love to study. I mean, that's a big reason why I ended up as a pastor. I love to study the word of God and, um, and I've read a lot on Genesis and I've done a lot of looking for Jesus in the Old Testament story. And I mean, I think I had some bad practices that I had to unlearn and I've tried to learn good practices because it's fun to read the Bible that way. And then I got this week, I, I, I saw some of you had told, a few of you had told me about this Bible Project podcast and so... I got into this Bible Project podcast. These guys are so smart. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, as with all, I'm not saying you have to agree with any, everything everyone says, but, but the Bible Project guys, what they do is they, first of all, they really, they've, they've got these really cool videos on every book of the Bible. So if you're studying a book of the Bible, I think their videos are really helpful. But the other thing, if you've been to the webpage lately, is they make these videos of major themes that run all the way through Scripture. Which again, if we're talking about healthy ways of finding Jesus in the Old Testament, to me that's the healthiest way to do it. We call it biblical theology. There are these things that are introduced in, the, in Genesis, we're going to read Genesis 2 and 3. And they find their culmination, their fulfillment in Jesus, and they run all the way through to the book of Revelation. And these themes, we want to be attentive to these things. And it was different, written in a different language, in a different time, in a different culture. And so we aren't trained, we actually aren't trained to read the Bible as a good Hebrew would read the Bible. Um, and so we have to learn these things. You got to put in a little bit of work sometimes. But when you do, the payoff is so great. Uh, but I, but all I'm, I'm saying all that to say I got myself in a little bit of trouble because there was so much in this Bible Project podcast, actually nine episodes, and then I had way too many pages of notes, and I still don't know exactly how this sermon is going to go. I got so much information, but I did notice I got extra time, so maybe we'll just get, I will try not to, but we are a little ahead of schedule here. So we're going to kind of work our way. I'm not going to read every verse in Genesis 2 and 3, but I'm going to read 
what I want to do is kind of read through. It's a story that some of you may be really, really, really familiar with, and some of you maybe not. Maybe you've never read. Maybe you've never read. Really important story in the Bible. Actually, so much is introduced, and I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a sense of, of some of these major images, um, just interactions that are going to take place that are meant Again, as you learn to read the Hebrew Bible, these, these stories are given to us, and then later authors, Moses himself, is going to rewrite, or they're going to write the stories of history, but they're going to write it kind of even using some of the images and language we get from Genesis, and we're meant to be looking for these themes all the way through. It's really cool. So Genesis chapter 2, will begin in verse 4. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Again, if, you've, if you're familiar at all with Genesis, there's, there's, there's a seven-day creation narrative, and then we get this creation narrative of the Garden of Eden. They both complement each other. They're doing different things. That's a sermon for another day. But it's interesting, in the first creation account, you kind of have too much water, <laughs> And not enough land. And in this creation account, and maybe it's because it's the Garden of Eden is seen to be on a mountain, but you have too much land and not enough water. So God is going to bring forth water. Springs, verse 6, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. And so you can even imagine, imagine God as a, as a potter. And so you've got this dry dust. You can't do anything with the dry dust. So God brings forth water, these springs, and now he's got mud. And he's going to mold with this mud. And it says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And that's a critical, verse 7, a critical verse for understanding why does humanity play such an important role in the story of creation, in the story of the Bible, in the story of the world as we experience? Why is humanity so unique? It's because God breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And we've talked about this in other settings, but humanity really is one of these intersecting places of heaven and earth. We are a hybrid of the stuff of the earth and the breath of God, which is why throughout much of the biblical story, we're going to be viewed as priests because we're mediating heaven and earth, right? We, 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 we are to image God as we care for creation, and then we take the joys of creation and offer it back up to God and worship this meeting place of heaven and earth says, verse 8, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. And we're going to talk about these trees. Actually, this is one of the things I, I learned so much about trees in the Bible in the last two weeks. The Lord made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground. And notice, these are beautiful trees. These are lots of trees. They're beautiful trees. They're producing delicious fruit. It is just, what did we say last week? It's paradise. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he's going to go on to talk about a river flowed from the land of Eden and divided. And it's going to talk, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to talk about that. We won't talk about the river. We're going to talk about these trees. Verse 15, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him. 
you may freely eat the fruit of every tree. Every tree, that includes the tree of life. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. And two, before you immediately run off to like, oh, I know what he means by die, you got to let the narrative explain to you what exactly all of this is going to mean. So let's talk a little bit about the tree of life. Well, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's eternal life and blessing is available to the humans to eat freely, right? They're they're commanded to eat of these trees. But in this very first narrative here, and again, this is going to play out throughout Genesis and the rest of the Bible, there's a test. Adam, Adam here has to choose to trust God to continue eating from the tree of life. And if he doesn't, he'll find himself cut off from life. And it is fascinating, if you, if you pause and enter into the story, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not off somewhere in the corner. It's, it seems to be right in the middle, right next to the tree of life. And as we're going to find out as we keep reading, it looks good. I mean, some people have said it, it, it even seems like the, the branches to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil hang a little lower. Right? Isn't that how it is? This temptation will see to, to gain wisdom on our terms. And it's not so much good and evil as in like morality as it's, as it's good and bad, beneficial and harmful. We, we have the choice. We can trust God to tell us what is good, what is beneficial, and what is harmful, Or we can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and decide for ourselves what is good for us. Don't you tell me what's good. I know what's good, right? That's the maps with our experience. It does seem, if you think about it that way, that the branches from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil hang a little lower. They're just a little bit easier to read. But I also, just spending more time, one of the things that I, I, I don't think I'd thought much about, I mean, I had thought about it, but I hadn't really interacted with anybody who put it into words. As you, as you read through the story of Scripture, it's clear that God's not like withholding. We, we even said what we were singing. I don't know if you were paying attention. I, I was looking for it. But in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the one, the one verse we sang was about wisdom from above. Like, it's not like God doesn't want us to have wisdom, but it's, it's almost as if Adam here is in an infant state, and God's like, I will teach you what is right and wrong, but let me teach you in my time, in my ways. Don't go rushing into this on your own. I, I want you to know wisdom because I want you to rule with my authority over all of creation with wisdom. But just let me teach you. Let me help you grow. This is why we talk so much about discipleship. It's, it's kind of always been God's heart to teach humanity who he is and who we are meant to be. Well then, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. We get uh, verse, verse 18. Uh, I'm not going to read this, but God's gonna, he, wants, he wants to make a helper for Adam because he's alone. So he creates animals, but there's no suitable helper. So verse 21, the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and he closed up the opening. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he he brought her to the man. And the man is really excited. (laughs) 
This one is bone for my bone and flesh for my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united in one. It's an interesting picture where one becomes two and then through a covenant relationship, the two become one. <laughs> it's an interesting thing there in verse 2, 24. And then verse 25 is really important for setting up where we're at. At this point, the man and his wife are both naked and there's no shame. They're two human beings living together, but, but they are, they are, they're, they're as if they're one. They're, they're, they're fine. I mean, they don't even realize they're vulnerable. They don't, I mean, in, in, the, in the setting there, they don't feel, but there's no shame. There's no fear. Which then gets us to chapter 3. We're introduced to another character. The, serpenter was, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And this is where, I mean, if we've been tracking along in Genesis, humanity is meant to rule over all of creation. And now we've got a creature. Now he's, I mean, the Bible later will connect the serpent to the Satan, the devil, right? The accuser. But in the narrative, it's a creature. Now it's a creature who is kind of usurping God's order. A creature is kind of trying to rule over humans. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? She said, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. But you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw, and this, I mean, this actually, this is one of the patterns that just echoes and reverberates all the way through the old into the New Testament. She saw that the tree was beautiful. Now, we've already been told there's lots of beautiful trees with delicious fruit, but there's this tree in particular, beautiful, fruit looked delicious, and here it is. She wanted, she desired the wisdom it would give her. She wanted to take wisdom for herself. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And it says, at that moment, their eyes were opened. And this is what the, the narrative says. This is what it means for their eyes to be opened. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig, leagues to get, fig leaves together to cover themselves. <laughs> uh, so Interesting. So she desires this wisdom, and she takes it for herself, and her eyes are open. Adam's eyes are opened, and what actually happens is their eyes are opened, and they realize that they are vulnerable to each other. They feel, they feel different. All of a sudden, there's this sense of, of alienation, isolation, I don't, but, but there's just not the same intimacy that was there before their eyes are open. And now, instead of seeing them, the two as one, they now see each other as different. They're, they feel vulnerable. And then, it's interesting, I never thought about this before, but they cover themselves up with these leaves. That's their response to the shame and the vulnerability that they're feeling. And so, again, they're meant to be in God's image, they're meant to be so much more than trees, 
but they actually dress themselves up as trees <laughs> and dress themselves up as the wrong kind of tree, right? That's their response. It's, it's this picture of, of, of how human beings have, are, are falling. They've degraded themselves. They were meant to be so much more, and they've settled for so much less. And then, this is, this is really interesting, too. Verse, verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And when the Lord called to the man, where are you? He said, I heard you walking in the garden, and I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And you get the whole who told you you were naked, and then there's the blaming. And, you know, you, you guys, you, you know that part of the story, or you can read it. But I thought it was interesting, as, as I was going through this, and really, the, actually, the Bible Project guys really leaned into the Hebrew on this. When it talks about the, 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 the evening breezes of the day, in Hebrew, it's just literally, the, you could say, the wind of the day or the spirit of the day. The Hebrew word is ruach. It's, it's the spirit. It's the word used for the spirit of God, the spirit that hovers over the waters in the first creation account. It's this picture of the presence of God coming, and they, they hear it. But, it, but I actually, it's, it's interesting the way it gets translated in the English because, it, because, because it's the presence of God coming. And I think normally this would have been a joyous thing for Adam and Eve. God is coming. The whole point is to meet with God in the center of the garden at the tree of life. But because they've rebelled, because they've sinned, because they've disobeyed God's command, all of a sudden, and this is going to play out as we keep reading, even in the story of Moses and beyond, when the presence of God comes, after we've rebelled, all of a sudden, we become afraid of the presence of God. And he comes, and so it's almost better probably to picture this not as like a cool, like fall breeze and the changing leaves. It's like a storm coming. I think it's better to think about it that way. I think that's why they're afraid that a storm is coming. You read Mount Sinai and some of these other times when God's presence is coming in the midst of his sinful people, it's like a storm, an earthquake. <laughs> it's a good way to see what's happening here. A storm is coming. In the narrative, once you've eaten of the tree of knowing good and bad and taken that authority for yourself, being in God's presence is now something that Adam and Eve are afraid of. And even if you're an astute Bible reader and you've kept reading, this even, I think this is the birthplace of this. And the, and the prophets, they're going to talk about the day of the Lord. The day when the Lord comes, and it's usually like a picture of God coming in judgment. I think it comes here. The wind of the day. The spirit of the day. The prophets are going to grab that language and, and unfold this metaphor of the day of the Lord. Well, then there's these curses, which we'll, we'll come back only to the curse on the serpent. We'll come back to that at the end. But this is how Genesis 3 wraps up. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take from the tree of life and eat it, and then they will live forever? I want to, I want to help us think about this a little bit more, too. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending him out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And now we have, if you've ever taken an English class or literature, now we have our drama. 
There is a way to life. There's a way to live that leads to death. We just saw that unfold. But we also know with the tree of life out there, there is a way to live. And and Genesis will work on unpacking this. There is a way to live that doesn't end in death. And the question that's going to be, could be, should be in our minds all the way through the Bible, how do we get back to that place? That place of life, that place in the presence of God that, that doesn't end in death. How do we get back there? And I actually submit to you that God exiling them from the garden, based on what I, well, what I understand is happening to Adam and Eve, it's, it's actually, it's, a, it's an act of mercy. God says death will be the consequence. And what, what, that, what, that, what that's going to mean in the, in, in the narrative, because death is going to happen, but they eat from the tree and the first thing they do is mistrust each other and hide their bodies, and then blame each other. And the first death, the first dying in the Bible, is really when Cain kills Abel. And it's one human being killing another human being. All of a sudden we realize, this is when we talk about like living with sin, we are corrupt, and we are selfish, and it's actually an act of God of mercy to say, I am not going to let you be in this state of corruption and live forever. That would be the worst curse I could do. <laughs> so I'm going to banish you from the garden, and then I'm going to bring in, I mean, we'll get there, right? But I'm going to bring in a hero <laughs> who is going to transform you and cleanse you and forgive you and heal you and save you and deliver you from your corruption so that when it's time to live forever, you're ready. <laughs> and you're in a state where you want to be in forever. Keeping them from the tree of life while they are living in a state of death means that they don't have to live forever in death. And the way the Bible is unfolding it, it would have been a curse for them. And the consequence, the result, Eden is forfeited and it's lost. And the goal is going to be to restore humanity to that Eden blessing, to find life in God, access to God. That's the rest of the story. So before we get to Jesus, I want to spend a little time thinking about what is this then? How does this translate to you and me? What does this mean? And I, you know, I actually had, I had a lot of stuff down on this. Um, sometimes I just find other people's way of saying things are, are better than I think I would say it myself or just really helpful for me. So I want to share it with you. And I was preparing this morning and kind of trying to figure out how to put things, and I really just, in a moment, just a few hours ago, I was even standing up here just thinking through things. I just really felt like the Spirit of God was like, ah, just tell them your personal experience of this right now. It's like, ah, really? Yeah, just tell them your personal experience. So I will do, at, at the risk of being vulnerable myself and uh, repeating myself on some things that I've shared before, but, but I was, how do we experience this? The seizing of wisdom for ourselves, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the corruption, the death that follows. How do we experience it? I was thinking about, you know, the last three years have been really interesting. Even probably a, a season of isolation and alienation more than most of us have experienced, just based on what we all walked through together and everything that we had to deal with. But one of the things that happened for me, most of you know, I've been kind of charting this and getting more and more specific as I get closer, but I, I think December 18th is the day that I will be the age my dad was when he died. So I've been thinking a lot about my dad lately um, and, 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 and not having a dad, and especially as a dad, having a son and thinking about my relationship with Jay 
And I was going through, you know, it's just these last three years, I, there, there have been moments where I have realized so many of the decisions that I make as a father, I make for Jay. Like, I just, Kami and I, when we're, we're planning things out, we always think about Jay. And what's going to be, oh, we can't do that, it wouldn't be good for Jay. <laughs> and I've had these seasons in the last few years where I've, I've kind of, and I, I don't know that I did it a lot before the pandemic, but for some reason during the pandemic, I just leaned into it more and I was like, God, I want a dad. Like, sometimes it feels, now I know it's not true, because I know people in here care, but, 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 but sometimes I feel like, is there anybody out there? I don't have a dad. Is there anybody out there who's thinking about my good when I'm not with them? Is there anybody out there who's making decisions and their decisions, I mean, they're they're doing things that are beneficial for me, and I wrestle with that with God, and I find myself wanting that. I don't know if any of you have ever found yourself wanting that. Is there there somebody out there outside of my house where I live or my apartment that that is thinking of me and, and making decisions that are good for me? I mean, the reason why I think we all probably feel that at some point is because we've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we've all acquired the wisdom to decide what's beneficial and harmful on our own, and what do we do with it? We do what's good for me. All of us do this. What's good for me? No one out there is thinking about you because they're all thinking about me. I just think that's what's happened. And even, you know, we talk so much about love. And this is where I, you know, I want to fight to redeem love. What does love mean? Well, it's what, look at Jesus. Jesus tells us what love is. But in our culture, love has become, oh, no, no. I'm just going to encourage you to keep doing whatever you think is good for you. Right? We just, we've like, not only have we all eaten from the tree, and made decisions for ourselves because it's easier and we want to choose what's good for me. But now we've distorted love. And now, I mean, and love's our pathway out of this. And Jesus, and we've distorted, no, no, you just do what's good for you. Just do what's good, you know. Uh, we're, we're, we're a mess. We're a mess. And part of the biblical story is we shouldn't be surprised by it, right? Because from the very beginning, God felt perfectly fine putting the tree of life right by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. There's almost like there's something fundamental to humanity that says if you and I are going to mature and be healthy humanity, we have to be able to deny ourselves and trust God. Right? That's, that's fundamental. Even before the fall, that's just how God had it set up. You walk by that tree and you don't eat from that tree. And the irony is there's plenty of other good things, other trees, but we said, no, you told me I want that one. I want to choose for myself. What's good for me? I know what's good for me. Well, maybe you don't. So it raises the question, biblically or personally, is there another way? Is there another way of being? Is there a group of people that we could be a part of? Is Is there a way to learn to care for others more than you care for yourself? To quote Paul in Philippians, to, to put others' desires ahead of your own, right? 
I mean, is there a place we could go? Is there a way? Is there a community of people? I don't know how to live that way, but is there a community of people out there that would, that would show me how to do that and I would actually experience what that's like and then I could learn from them and I could, I could live, you know, and that's, that's, that becomes the question. The people of God, are they going to be that kind of community that loves their neighbor as themselves? And that just reverberates all the way through Moses all the way to Jesus. All right, so let's now turn our attention to Jesus. That's a bit of time in Genesis. Where do we now see Jesus? I think in healthy ways and with the, with the help of some of our New Testament authors. First, I want to talk about the tree, the tree of life. God planted the tree of life. It's a gift of God. It's something that we can take and we can experience eternal life. It's a gift. And God's first command to humanity is to eat of all the trees. It's a gift. It's a command. It's not a reward for doing good. So even from the beginning of the biblical story, we see a God of grace. One of the things I love to say is life is not a game to be won. It's a gift to be lived. From the very beginning, life was meant to be a gift. The gift is given before the humans have done anything because it's not a reward. It's a gift. It's the gift of eternal life. The first divine command is to enjoy the gift of eternal life. It's yours. So the warning about the tree of knowing good and evil is eating from this tree will result in forfeiting the thing that is already yours. That's that's the way the story lays out. You're forfeiting the thing that is already yours. And once humans make the wrong choice, they forfeit the gift and they begin a train wreck of consequences that result in all the pain and all the death and all the evil of our world. I mean, again, why the Bible is so helpful? Because it helps us make sense of what we really experience. And what I want to submit to you in many ways, Jesus is the tree of life himself. I think there's two ways we could go about making this connection. Many people will make this connection. One of the themes that I I wanted to get into more because it's so cool to trace this out, but I just don't have time to do it. But this, this idea of a tree on a hill as a meeting place for God. I mean, just read through Genesis and go looking for it. It, it, it becomes like this mini Eden throughout this, the Pentateuch, these first four, five, five books of the Bible. Just just these, these places where God is, is kind of trying to, 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 to create a new, a new Eden, right? To, to have these meeting places, a tree on a hill. And, and when there's not a tree, guess what else is made of wood? An altar. <laughs> Sometimes there's an altar. So you have that kind of image and that kind of pattern that unfolds. Well, is there a place in the New Testament where you have a piece of wood on a hill As a meeting place with God, well, of course, that's Jesus on the cross, right? Jesus on the cross. He is the tree of life. He is the way back to eat in the presence of God. It's this dramatic story that goes all the way through. It builds, it builds, it builds. And then we meet God again at the cross in his presence. Life like we've never known. But in another way, and I think this is helpful to think through for our church uh, we, we can think of the tree, again, because the tree is a place where humans meet God, right? 
So what's happening in the story is a human being personally becoming one with the presence of God in the middle of the garden is depicted through this image of eating from the tree. And it's as if the fruit conveys God's life to the human through that proximity and intimacy. And again, this is where you get into the Hebrew, but the Hebrew word for tree can be translated in a variety of ways. Hebrew is interesting as you get to know it because the, the vocabulary is so different and the, the same word can be used in so many different ways. But a tree could also be a vine. <laughs> so for me, I had never thought about this before, but, but, but I, I, I started reading John 15 a little bit differently in light of this theme. And you can read it on your own. It's one of these fantastic passages about abiding in Jesus. And it begins, Jesus says, I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. <laughs> I mean, it's a subtle way that Jesus is saying, I am the tree of life. I mean, Jesus, is, he is identifying with this story, with this imagery. I am the tree of life. And you, your, his followers, you are my branches. Jesus is inviting all of us to come, and, and, and in this, he doesn't say come and eat from the tree, but he says, no, obey my commands, do what I've called you to do, trust me, and you will be connected with me. And, and then Jesus will go on to talk about, and you will bear fruit, but you have to be connected to me, and you have to abide in me, and then you'll be connected to the tree of life, and you will bear the fruit of life. Jesus really unpacks this idea in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about this new kingdom that he's bringing and the kind of people he will be creating from himself, really, because he's the tree out of which every part of the new creation sprouts. And he will talk about how if you're a good tree, you'll produce good fruit. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. And if you're a bad tree, you'll produce bad fruit because a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. And and the world will know his disciples by the fruit that they bear. It's always been God's heart to bring about a new kind of people who bear, really we could say Sermon on the Mount fruit, peacemaking and forgiveness and generosity and a life of devotion and prayer and many other things that he talks about, a, a way of love. We could say a way of love, the way of Jesus, the way of wisdom, the way of life but it's true humanity. So Jesus is the tree of life. He also is, and this kind of goes along with, if you were with us last week, I, present, I presented a few questions and I said, is Jesus this or that? And the answer was yes, <laughs> because he is the fulfillment of the whole biblical story. So Jesus is the tree of life. He is the ultimate meeting place with God. He is, he is that. But he's also the new Adam. So another theme that is going to be developed that gets introduced in this Genesis story at the very beginning is this idea of being tested. Not really necessarily to prove who you are, but to show, to show who you really are. And, and, and really in the Bible, it's like, it's where you can learn. How, where do you need to grow? But all the way through the Old Testament, the people of God are tested again and again and again and again, and they fail again and again and again again. Which is why, again, we get Jesus in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, being tested to choose what looks beautiful 
to, 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 to choose what would be easy, well, to, to choose what seems good, right? And Jesus says, no, I'm going I'm to go the way of the cross, which is ugly, until Jesus redeems it, right? I'm going to do the will of the Father. Jesus passes the test that the people of God have always failed in a garden. He is, he is the new Adam. Throughout the Old Testament, you're wrestling with this question, are these creatures made from the dust capable of being everything they were meant to be? And you kind of get, I mean, that's why we say the Old Testament is a story without an ending. You get to the end of the Old Testament, and you're like, no. No, we need a new version of this. Uh, not, not, not just, maybe not just the breath of God, but the very presence of God himself. That's what we need, right? Which is Jesus, and then that's Pentecost, right? You and I don't just get the breath of God. We get the very personal presence of God himself. <laughs> a souped-up version, a new humanity. That's what is happening in the biblical story. And Paul gets really excited about this. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 15 and 17. There's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, this new Adam, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ, the new Adam. I mean, you ever wake up in the morning and look, I've had this experience. This is actually really what led me to Christ if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're exploring. I remember waking up, I was in college, I, I looked in the mirror and I thought, who am I? I don't even respect myself anymore. What have I been doing? And I began to cry out, is there another way, God, in my own ways? God, is there another way? There's got to be a better way to live than the way that I'm living. And then I met Jesus. <laughs> I said, yes, there's no, but this is, this is the way. This is the way I want to live. There is no other way to, ah, this is the most beautiful way to be human I've ever imagined. And I've been following Jesus ever since. Jesus is the hero because he comes to the place where humankind was in ruins in order to make humanity something far better than they had been in the first place. That's what Jesus does. I know there's a lot of wrestling with self-value, self-esteem, self-worth, especially for those of you in those younger generations. Oh man, run to Jesus and let him make you even more. You don't even know what God wants to do with you. Come to him. Eat of the tree of life. Even in your ruins, he's going to make you something greater. But you've got to trust him. You've got to follow him. You've got to, not my will, but yours, right? Stop. I mean, how, is, how has your own wisdom worked out for you so far, right? So follow Jesus. But what do I, I wasn't going to say this, but what do I like to say? You think of yourself 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and you're like, man, I was such an idiot back then. So by your own account, 20 years from now, you is saying you're an idiot right now. So trust Jesus instead of yourself, right? By your own account in 20 years, you're going to look back and say, I was such an idiot. So trust Jesus today. And you won't say you were an idiot. 
I've never regretted a decision I've made by trusting Jesus. Just never. I've never done it. We could go a little farther with this, too. I got a little farther. Let me just go. In Luke chapter 3, you get this genealogy. And it starts with Jesus, but it ends with Adam. And, and it's, almost like, it's almost like Luke is saying, so humanity had a common ancestor, but now that there's a new humanity, we have a new common ancestor. And that's why there is no, no, no slave or free, no, no uh, Jew or Gentile, no male or female. We're all one in Christ because we now all have the same ancestor in Jesus and the new humanity. So we are one family in Christ because we all go back to the same ancestor in Christ. We are no longer known by our division, but now by our unity and because we reflect his character. We could do a lot more with that, but I want to end with Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. So back to our Genesis story. Uh, God is going to curse. He's going to curse a couple things, but we're only going to talk about the curse on the serpent here. Uh, The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild, and you will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Verse 15, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, Verse 15 is often referred to in fancy terms as the proto-euangelion. It's a fancy way of saying the first good news. Now, this is part of what I mean. I've been trying to give you some themes for how we see Jesus fulfilling, uh, fulfilling this big story, how he's the hero. And it's kind of cool because a lot of stories, you've got to wait till the very end to know how it's going to end. You do realize in Christianity, we don't have to wait till the end of humanity. That might be a problem because God has put the clue, the, 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 the source, the fulfillment in the middle of the story in the person of Jesus. And now we know how the story is going to end because he's the first fruits of the new creation. It's good news. Well, back in Genesis, there was this mysterious riddle, and if you were just reading this apart from the New Testament, you, ah, it's an interesting riddle. What do you do with this? A seed of a woman, uh, crushed the, bit by the, on the heel by a snake, but but crushed the head of the serpent. What do you do with this? But when you're a Christian, you can go back and you're like, oh, now that I know what I know about Jesus, it's actually, I know what he's saying. I know what's being said. The seed of a woman, there's no mention of a man. It's just the seed of a woman. Now, that might be mysterious riddle, but I know about the virgin birth. <laughs> There's only one person I know who was born of just a woman. His name is Jesus. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, God knew what he was going to do. And, and we're going to develop this more. I'm not going to spend too much time on this right now because we're going to develop this more definitely when we get to Joseph. Well, we'll, well this will be a big part of Joseph. But you begin to wonder what can be done. How is this going to unfold? And, I, and honestly, it's right there in the story, but the, but the people of God missed this for so long. I mean, Isaiah gives us a snapshot in Isaiah 53, but, but there's, there's one who needs to come to suffer on our behalf. It's right there. He's going he's to defeat evil and sin. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, but he's going to be bit. One needs to come to suffer on our behalf. That's what Isaiah was talking about, the suffering servant. But somehow people just missed it. They never imagined that that would be the way that God would bring us back to Eden. But that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come and he's going to suffer on our behalf, a death he didn't deserve, 
But because, because he allows the serpent to bite him on the heel, he is going to go down into death and pull the ultimate triumph and conquer death with his life. Amen. I just love that. Such a good story. And Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. So that's what we're going to do in this series. I hope it'll be fun for you. We'll be looking at Abraham next week, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. That'll be our journey to Christmas. And we'll try to kind of revisit this. We've introduced a lot this morning, but we're introducing the drama. We're outside of Eden. How do we get back? Because even as you read through Genesis, I mean, Noah's going to be presented as the new Adam until he also fails in a vineyard. And then Abraham's going to get this promise and this covenant, and this covenant's going to be the way forward. But, but Abraham also is going to kind of become like the new Adam. But then he's going to be portrayed even as the serpent. And so, I mean, just the way it all pours. I mean, Abraham's not, well, you just keep reading. Maybe this, maybe it's David, maybe it's Solomon, no, it's Noah. And we just keep waiting, and then we get to Jesus. And he's the one. That's why, that's why Advent is such a great season, because we, we're building up now for Christmas, because, because we've had to wait a long time, but now Jesus is here. Amen? All right, so I thought what we would do is I want to close us, um, Nate and Taylor, you can come up. I want to I close us just with a prayer of confession. I just thought, I mean, the, the story of the Garden of Eden is all about us messing up. <laughs> uh, messing up big time. And so I just thought, let's do a, a corporate confession of sin. We did this on Wednesday night, actually, if you were here, but let's do it again. So if you want to pray with me, we'll pray the Jesus prayer, and then we'll confess our sins, and then we'll sing another song. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen?